Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from beautiful McGregor, Iowa. And I'm thrilled today to welcome Juan Garcia, who's the Assistant Vice President for Advancement Strategy and Campaign Director for the University of Texas at Austin. As they say, everything's in, bigger in Texas, including titles and the scale of the operations down at UT Austin. Thank you for joining us, Juan. Thank you, Brent. That's a very energetic introduction. I very much appreciate it. <laughs> Well, I believe the last time we got together uh, in person was a couple of years ago, and, and my colleague Molly and I developed this questionable strategy of targeting all of our visits to Texas in late July and early August. And so we had this, this route we would do where we'd get to catch up with you and the folks at Baylor and TCU and SMU and... And it was always 105 degrees. And, and when we constantly did that trip, I don't know why we couldn't have timed it better, uh, but you did treat me to some delicious Tex-Mex and I won't forget that. That's right. We're at Trudy's. So it's good to see you. Trudy's. I couldn't remember. That's yeah. right. Trudy's. It's well, a lot, by campus. Yeah. I, a lot has changed since then uh, in the world and uh, in your world. And I look forward to reconnecting on the latest and greatest in your work. Uh, but I want to start, as I have been with recent guests, and actually going back in time to just better understand your journey. And I, I would love for you to just walk me through Juan Garcia, junior year of high school. Who was that kid? What was he into? And what led him to choose Purdue University to pursue your own higher education, uh, or at least your first higher education degree? Sure. That's a, a very... Good question. And, and you can imagine back then I had a lot more hair than I do now. Um, but, um, you know, as a junior in, uh, at my high school in Gary, Indiana, um, I was fortunate that I was part of the Purdue Upper Bound program. And I had some really good ties to that program and knew I wanted to be something related to math and science and engineering seemed to be the best fit. Um, there was a time that I wanted to go to California and, and, and get my engineering degree. But at the end of the day, with everything that Purdue had provided me, both because I had started going to West Lafayette my summer junior, sophomore year, started earning college credits. And then junior year, I earned more college credits at the local Purdue Calumet campus. It just made sense to go to Purdue. I knew it. It was good. I was only about an hour and a half away from home. Uh, I knew the campus. And it was a really great engineering program. It still is a great engineering program. So I'm very proud of you know, to get my engineering degree at Purdue. And I'm an industrial engineer. Um, and uh it's helped me ever since in everything I've done because engineer, you're trying to solve problems. And, you know, my job today, I mean, that's all I'm doing is trying to solve problems, whether it's IT process, donor issues. I mean, it's all about trying to figure out the resources I need to kind of solve the problems. Uh, so that degree has been a, a great helpful for me to where I'm at today. I've done over 80 of these episodes. Now you'll probably be around the upper eighties published and I have not interviewed too many industrial engineers. You might be the first, right? So this is a cross-section of advancement leaders around the country uh, and maybe just a couple of MBAs. And you've got both of those. And, and my understanding is you, uh, after your industrial engineering um, degree at Purdue, sort of immediately pursued the MBA uh, at UT Austin. And that's not all that typical. I'm curious what sparked your interest um, to sort of immediately marry that engineering background with the MBA curriculum uh, prior to going out uh, into maybe the real world, if you will? Sure. No, that's, that's fair. Good question. I think it's a time. what ended up happening is a friend of mine at uh, Purdue, actually one of my advisors, uh, 
just happened to hand me a brochure for something called the Consortium for Graduate Study Management. And, you know, I had always wanted to be in management at some point in my career. And I applied and was able to get a fellowship. And I was able to get the fellowship at the University of Texas at Austin, which is how I came to Texas. And it was, again, that same conversation between, do I go to California, go to USC, or go to Texas? And I wanted to be in Texas. And I had a choice, right? I can go to work. I had a job offer working for, I think at the time, Southwestern Bell in St. Louis, um, or which was going to be a marketing, or I could come to Texas and get my MBA. And I just felt like if I didn't go get that MBA now, and particularly since I had the fellowship, to go do it. And I wanted to get, you know, out of kind of the Midwest, uh, I the fan of the cold. I just felt like it was the right thing for me to do. And you're right, not many people did it. I think in my class with less than 20 that did it, it was pretty discouraged. They wanted you to have experience. And I think that's important for me, MBA program. Uh, but it just worked out that I was able to come to Texas, do well my MBA program, get some good internships, and then go do management consulting, which is what but the time was my dream. So for me, it was kind of the MBA helped me really get closer to where I wanted to be in life. Um, not that there was anything wrong with working in Southwestern Blend Marketing. It's just like the time, it's just like I really wanted to kind of keep aspiring, growing. And uh, the fellowship was just a sign that maybe I needed to take this opportunity and move to Texas. Really neat. And so... Uh, it's one thing to go from Gary, Indiana, down the road to Purdue, like generally uh, culture that you are familiar with. You're obviously growing up in the area. Uh, you're a Cubs fan. That doesn't hurt, uh, as we were discussing. But uh, Texas and Austin specifically, very different place. So what was it like when you sort of got thrown into the MBA program? Any memories from the early because uh, you're meeting, you know, new people in a new place in a curriculum that candidly is probably a little more tailored to people with a few years of work experience. And so you had to be one of the younger uh, individuals in the class. I mean, any memories from those early, early moments? Oh, absolutely. Like you remember Texas, you and Molly kind of doing that trek, you know, moving to Texas. Well, actually, I moved in the summer, but moving to Austin in uh, August, you know, you're in those high 90s, hundreds. It was hot. I just remember like, it was just freaking hot. Um, but also uh, the culture, what I expected Texas to be, what it was, was very different. Uh, so it was a little bit of a culture shock. Uh, I grew up in a very Mexican community, Mexican household. I thought everyone spoke Spanish and you come to Texas and it's, you know, not everyone does. And it's uniquely different experience. Nothing bad. It's just different. So I had to learn that and adapt to Texas. And then you're right. The MBA curriculum is very experience based. Uh, with a lot of casework, which I didn't have as much. And so it was a bit of a challenge and stretch. The coursework was I won't say easy, but it was pretty easy to understand compared to my engineering coursework. The hard part was applying the cases. You were working a lot in teams and taking the, the, the I'll use the, what you learned in class and I'll apply it to a case and coming with assumptions and business decisions. That was a bit of a challenge. I was fortunate that, you know, I was able to do really good in my first year and set myself up for a good internship at Hewlett Packard and work on in, in Northern California, which was great experience. Um, but it was a challenge because it, but it challenged areas I had not had challenged before, right? Before it was all my intellectual abilities, learning materials, you know, reapplying it. And now I'm working in teams, a little more different type of negotiations, uh, kind of working in group dynamics, very different from my engineering background. So it was, uh, it's a great experience. It taught me a lot and kind of forced me to grow up even more so than I had in the past, not having that work experience. And so you do the program you mentioned that management consulting was uh, of interest. You end up getting an opportunity at Pricewaterhouse, now PwC, and get to go down that consulting path. Quick stop there and then go into uh, what I'm sure was a super interesting run at Arthur Anderson. And so uh, I know, having hosted over 80 guests now, that no one has had 
that extensive of a true management consultant. And, and maybe we can even talk about the difference between a consultant, which obviously there are a lot of consultants in the advancement sector, but that's very different than the kind of work that you would have done at Arthur Anderson, for example. So why don't you just share a little bit on um, what it was like? And I just remember having a mentor in college who said, you know, there are a few better early stage career paths uh, to really, if you're interested in business, to to cut your teeth in either investment banking or consulting. And you went down the consulting path. I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah, I think what, what fascinated about the consulting business and my experience, uh, which proved true, was at a very young age, you're giving a lot of responsibility. Right? You go into these companies, you're paid by the hour, at least they bill, your billing rate. And they ex- those companies expect you to deliver results pretty quickly. And so um, you have to learn a lot, learn it fast. Um, and you've got to be good with data. You've got to be good with, you know, understanding business logic and making good business analysis and decisions. You're interviewing a lot of people that are more senior than you, probably 20, 30 years your senior. So you got to have good questions and good preparation. Uh, so again, another opportunity to really grow fast. And as you point, you, depending on the number of projects you do and the type of projects you do, you learn a lot very quickly. And then you've got to compile it down and then communicate in an executive fashion what took you three months to do. And now you got to put it down into maybe a one hour presentation that gets to, you know, recommendations and even talks to assumptions. So it was a fire hose of information that really tests you uh, in some different environments. Some clients are very easy to work with. Some clients are more difficult and you've got to traverse those relationships and improve yourself every day, almost every hour because you're meeting with different people. So it was a uh, trial by fire, so to speak. And, you know, generally I did pretty well. There was a cases where I would have struggles and have to kind of deal with them, get coached through it. But, you know, luckily in that firm environment, particularly when I was at Arthur Anderson, you know, it was a really good teamwork, good environment, good partners that would mentor you and help you through the process. And so, again, it, to me, it was a lot of growth and development and really taught me a lot of things about technology, which I didn't know, which, you know, at the time was not what I wanted to do, but I ended up spending a lot of time having to deal with technology and taught me a lot of skill sets that I kind of prepare me for this job today. Well, I usually wait till the end of the episode to encourage folks to look up our guest on LinkedIn or connect, but I want everybody right now that's listening to look Juan up if you're on your phone or if you're on your, uh, your computer, just look up Juan's profile, Juan Garcia, Texas, and uh, go down to his Arthur Anderson uh, listing because what you will see is truly how varied the exposure is that you get to different industries. And one of the things I remembered through my finance uh, early career years is you would you would go from one Monday getting really, really focused on, let me see, uh, pricing process for a highway construction firm. And then Juan would have to go and do uh, work on transforming a functional manufacturing facility into a cellular manufacturing facility. And then one day you're doing pre-IPO online residential power and gas work. And you go from knowing absolutely nothing about this industry, this company, um, but having general frameworks that hopefully you can apply um, you know, broadly uh, into different sectors. But it, it truly is uh, drinking from the fire hose. And I contrast that with the last 10 years of my career and yours, where you go so deep in one sector, um, you know, what are some of the, I don't know, moments uh, you look back on just thinking, wait, I was doing what in what industry? Or I remember, you know, I, I was with one where I remember it, it was called Fox Hollow Technologies. And it was this medical device technology that was going to go public. And it specifically worked on peripheral artery disease. And it had this like little technique to go in and remove I didn't know what peripheral artery disease was. I definitely didn't know anything about med tech. 
And it was just so fun getting to learn about all of these different spaces. Do you, do you feel the same way? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, what I miss, sometimes I miss the diversity of the work and the challenge and then even sometimes the pressure, right? Because I've worked on a couple of merger integrations and, you know, you always have day one, you're working to day one where the company's going to take over that operation. And, you know, that night before day one, you've got going through all your list of checklists, make sure we got everything covered. Even one assignment when I did it overseas and in, in Latin America, we were taking over a water plant. So it, it just, it, uh, the diversity of the challenge and experience that you're, you're put through, it really tests you, your abilities, both analytical, as well as your confidence and your ability to ask questions. And, you know, I, you can't ever, you can't simulate that in a training class as much as you want to, in terms of the pressure of dealing with clients, dealing with complex problems, dealing with situations where you've got to solve the problem now and be prepared to handle the kind of the consequences. And sometimes you're right. And every now and then you might make a mistake here and you got to own up to it and kind of fix it and move on. Uh, so it's, it's a trial by fire, but again, it, to me, it, it made life pretty interesting, kind of got me prepared for what I need to do today. Uh, Arthur Anderson, as everybody knows, or maybe some don't, because uh, it's been a long time, uh, tough ending to what was a storied uh, you know, history. What was your exposure experience uh, to the extent you're comfortable sharing just around that aspect of the journey? Sure. Yeah, it was a, it was a t- painful because uh, I had worked in a Houston office and that was one of my clients at one point. And I knew a lot of people that were involved. I had since moved to Austin by the time all that happened. So I was a little removed that I wasn't involved in kind of the aftermath of that. But it was tough watching the firm kind of unwind um, the work that everyone had built, uh, you know, just kind of begin to dwindle. We were fortunate enough that we got bought by another firm and kind of held us together for a little bit, but it was still never the same culture, the same environment. I think that made me appreciate the importance of good uh, culture, good business relationships, uh, particularly that partnership model that Arthur Anderson had. You know, I could I could call a partner in London, call a partner in Venezuela, and we could figure out resources and kind of do a deal. And it was rare that you could do that, a firm that was global, that nature, that could had the same values, same culture and be able to share resources and kind of kind of all work together to kind of solve a client's problem, particularly those clients that were global in nature that needed a team across the world. So it was a unique time that I didn't appreciate the time until now when I look back and think about the business relationships, the partnerships, the friendships. And, you know, some of those same people now are still in business in other areas. Uh, so they, those Arthur Anderson, you know, partners are still working together just in a different format than they were before. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing. And you know, one of the things you just hinted on or hinted at is the fact that these firms have been doing remote work and remote collaboration before there was video calls, right? I mean, before there was probably email in some cases. And so it is interesting as we think about how new this approach has been for higher education over the last year, how proven it has been, uh, for global consulting firms and many other businesses. And I'm curious maybe just to get your perspective on that as we all sort of wrestle with uh, what what is kind of the approach to flexibility? Um, You know, what's the advancement equivalent of calling the office in Venezuela and calling the office, you know, around the country or around the world, um, given that our constituents are global in nature, even though our campuses have been so physical and uh, deeply connected to specific cities, in your case, Austin. Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on the thing that we're probably most, um, I, I use the word worried about or planning for, is trying to figure out how we maintain our culture in this dynamic work model. We've proven we can take the advancement operations 
with limited staff coming back to the office, like if crossing and others to kind of uh, keep us running, it's probably not the most effective, uh, but it works. Uh, and now we've got to figure out how we maintain some of the benefits of working remotely, particularly giving our staff, you know, the ability to have a little more flexibility in their daily lives, but we've got to still be able to come back to the office and have in-person conversations and, um, you know, maintain our culture. You know, there's a specific culture here at Texas that's different from what is at UCLA, which is different from UNC, and that makes us so unique. And we got to find and maintain it, but we also have to figure out how we evolve it because, you know, the culture we had before wasn't bad, but it may not have been the best. There's more we can do. When I think about our organization, you know, our culture in the last five years has gone through a big transformation in how we focus more on proposals. And, you know, one of the pieces that we need more in our culture is more speed. You know, we can be faster at making the changes we're trying to make to our culture, our organization, our processes, all the things we need to do. And so we've got to figure out how we maintain that and maintain the uniqueness of our 40 acres here in Texas and the things that are really important to us. And, you know, you know, if we want to drive change, you know, there's only so much we can do virtually. At some point, we've got to get you in the office and have a frank conversation and really make sure everyone understands and shakes their heads. And, you know, you can see that they're it's clicking, you know, that we need that 3D experience. The 2D experience is not bad and it works but at some point we need that physical interaction, kind of talk to people and make sure they understand what we're trying to do and make sure we're all on board with the same direction. I guarantee there's a product manager, designers, and a whole team of engineers at Zoom right now taking notes about what you just said uh, as they do their interviews. And I do feel like your, your point around 2D versus 3D, uh, it feels like, virtual reality sort of missed its moment um, that a year into the pandemic, the experience of us, you know, now coming out of it, talking today is pretty much identical to what it would have been one, two, three, four years before that, even dating back to Skype. And so uh, it does make me wonder, um, given that so many people are saying like in-person is just different, how much more uh, technology might be able to bridge that gap. Uh, but it certainly wasn't there in time for this wave of, of innovation, if you will. Correct. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the, the part where we're waiting on. Or I we're waiting on. We're, we're preparing. I mean, when we started this, uh, what we call dynamic work model last year, I mean, we made some recommendations about how we were going to come back to the office. And we're kind of working through those right now in kind of a different phase approach. And one of the things we admitted at the time is that we probably do not understand or know the technologies that are going to be there for us you know, six months, 18 minutes, 24 months from now. So my suspicion of how we're expecting this fall, for example, to look like, I think in 12 months to 24 months, it's going to look totally different. There's new yeah. tools, new technologies. It's it just, it's going to be, because I think the one thing, that, and you made, you said something really striking, which I forgot about is I remember when I first started working where there was no email, right? If I wanted to go check my email, me and my consulting friends, we would all go to one computer in the office go line up, check our emails, get off. Next time a person would log in, right? Now we're sitting with these devices where I can check, well, you can't see it, my phone, but I can check anything, right? Email, social media, I mean, you name them, bank accounts, everything's on my, my phone. So I would have never imagined that 30, 40 years ago. So I suspect that in 12 to 24 months, this is going to look very yeah. different. And my hope is that it's going to help us be more productive, more effective, but more importantly, maintain those relationships and those bonds. And that's that's probably the piece that we have not, uh, I think we have a good plan to start with, but I feel like there's more we could do to kind of get there. What can we learn from the Arthur Andersons of the world or other firms that are global in nature, where you oftentimes might 
I mean, I imagine you were constantly meeting new colleagues on new projects or via new offices where you didn't know each other, you'd never worked together before, but you had a common culture, maybe common lingo or frameworks that were unique to the firm. What can we learn from experiences like that as we think about being more flexible and evolving our culture um, without kind of sacrificing maybe the perception of, of the value of the in-person um, interactions. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, that comes down to three things that I remember very distinctly about Arthur Anderson. One was the culture and specifically the values. Um, you couldn't go to any partner in the world and not have that partner understand the values and live those values, right? They, it was the values were embedded across the whole organization globally. Um, so whether I'm talking again, the part, my a partner I met in London versus, you know, Caracas that spent some time there, same values, right? And then the other part that supported the values was how they incentivize people. And this is a little about the topic, but revenue sharing, but, you know, everyone participated with the same metrics and revenue sharing, right? So revenue sharing in the U.S. was not different from the U.K. It was all the same for those global partners. And so their incentive wasn't about their local country. Their incentive was the firm, wherever the firm was. And so those common incentives across the organization, I think, are really critical. So we're all playing by the same incentives. And that's, that's for us, that's an interesting dynamic in terms of our frontline folks and non-frontline folks, how we make sure that the non-frontline folks still have some at stake with the frontline folks. So we're all on the same page. And that's probably one of the best dynamics we need to work through. So we have that, mm. that same understanding. And then the third thing was really interesting, Mark Anderson, is their training programs were global in nature. So when I would go to St. Charles and take a class or train kids, uh, young consultants, it was a, it was an international room, right? So in the room would be Italians, Germans, Argentinians, and we all spoke English, but we were all one big firm in that training class. So it created great opportunities to build my network of people from across the country and the globe, depending on where they were from. And then trained the next uh, round of consultants. Uh, so they all got the same training, whether you were coming from Africa, from Asia, Europe, U.S. We all were trained the same way, uh, generally speaking. So it, it created a, a great opportunity just to kind of, again, maintain that consistency in the culture uh, and that's how we operated. Uh, so, you know, I could call folks that I met from the Argentina office, you know, we worked together or, and I meet some of their, their students in, in St. Charles. So we just had those connections that you could, my partner used to say, you had to find a way to thread the firm. And it was, what it was is using your network in the firm to find other people that could help you with either skill sets or a project experience we were looking for and use your network. Um, right. And I think that's part of what we do with our, if you think about what our researchers do and our gift officers, they're using that alumni network to kind of find those connections to our folks. And so there's a lot of, I think, just, I would say basic, but good management tools in terms of how we work together as human beings. Really well said. And I think summarizing it, values, incentive alignment, and training. And as we think about a future where maybe someday there are 20 fundraisers in different pockets around the country or the world that work on behalf of UT Austin or other institutions. I'm not saying that's a strategy you're going to employ, but leaders are considering what if we actually embedded fundraisers in key pockets of population, reduce travel costs, get them locally connected to the market, the same way Arthur Anderson wanted Italians serving the Italian market because they understood the, the culture and the context. Why wouldn't we want fundraisers? serving Europe uh, in potentially the same way. If we're going to do that or test those strategies, how do we make sure the values are clear, the incentives are aligned, and that we are still doing those periodic in-person intensive training experiences 
so they understand the 40 acres and what makes it unique relative to other institutions at UT Austin. Yeah, I think the other thing I'll add, and this is, you know, I, depending on the size of the institution, this becomes problematic is we have these silos across campus, whether they're the college school versus university development office silos. And then you always got the functional silos between departments is breaking those down because what I'm finding is that as we have these complex problems, like you're dealing with the online giving page, we need multiple disciplines to kind of look at that problem and give their perspective and then to tie it together. And sometimes we're, we're really bad at sometimes some, we, we don't bring everyone in the room so that they can hear the problem, identify the problem, discuss best solutions and come up with a good, great resolution that cuts across the whole process, not just a segment of it. And I think that's something that from an institutional perspective, we kind of constantly work on it, kind of flatten our organization a little bit and be able to cut through that. And that's where speed becomes really critical because those silos and that communication between the silos really slows us down. And so bringing the people together that work together on that is complex because of the different incentives, different you know organizational structures. But if we can do that more efficiently, we can resolve our issues better and think about better processes so we can have less friction for our donors, less friction for people who use our processes internally. Really appreciate that perspective, Juan. Tell me a little bit more about what led you to take the leap into this advancement world that I imagine not a lot of people at Arthur Anderson were thinking about uh, during your time there. Yeah, I mean, this is totally kind of just backed into it. I, what ended up happening was that I moved to Austin back in kind of early 2000. We had a partner in Houston who was trying to build a higher education practice, and he had made a business relationship with Vice President of Development here at Texas and had been able to engage the university in a project that I ended up managing and working on related to um, helping them identify revenue opportunities uh, for the institution, um, non-traditional revenue opportunities. And that was kind of the dot-com time. So they were trying to figure out how do we take the university assets and could we build a revenue model? And so we ended up working with the College of Pharmacy at the time around their pharmacoeconomics program, trying to understand, can we line some things up with industry to find some opportunities? So that's how I ended up meeting the vice president of development, his team, because they were working, they were driving this project with the, the dean of the School of Pharmacy and uh, or the College of Pharmacy. And, you know, from then on, I built those relationships and stayed in touch with them and did a little bit of work here and there. And I was living here in Austin. And over time, one of the guys, Mark Peterson, who's the vice president at Wake Forest, said, hey, why don't you come do what you do, but do it for us as a staff member. And that's how I came on board and, you know, began working, at, I think I came on board as a director of marketing and eventually ended up running the annual giving program. But my job was really to kind of bring data analysis to higher education fundraising. And we started working on business cases, uh, put in some analytics, built a data warehouse back in like 07. Uh, so just trying to be, put some business tools and analysis tools into the fundraising program. Um, and that's how I started. I mean, it was, and it, and it was you know, a good timing for me because I was, my first daughter was coming on board, had just been born. You know, I was at that point I was traveling to the Middle East and other places. It didn't make sense to be gone so much as a dad. So I wanted something that was going to be a little more stable. And so mm -hmm. I was willing to make, you know, the changes in my career plan just to kind of be here for my family. And then also, you know, do something that sounded much more interesting. And I was very intrigued by working at the university and, you know, having this type of impact and who knew that, you know, what is it like 15 years later, I'd still be here in some form or fashion now, you know, doing what I'm doing now. So I'd, I'd never envisioned that I'd, I'd be in this role. And to me, that was a kind of supposed to be a short term stop and then go back to the private sector. It just never worked out that way. Well, I want to get more into what you're excited about today. Uh, but I have to ask when you're at the intersection of dot com boom and higher education, what were some of the craziest ideas that were thrown out there? There have to have been some pretty, pretty wild uh, concepts. 
Yeah, you know, they, they, uh, one of the concepts was a kind of like a competitor to WebMD because they had such great uh, information on kind of pharmacology. And so one, that was one of the options is to create one, a version of that that would compete against WebMD, for example. Uh, there was another one related to uh, uh, pharmaceutical benefit managers to kind of help them with information. So a lot of it was information based to kind of give information. And, they, and they, at the time, there were crazy ideas because you think about it, a university implementing these things probably wasn't going to happen. Universities are great places for knowledge and creation, not probably the best place where you want to be implementing and starting a new business. That kind of stuff has to go outside. I think we tried to go that direction, just never could get the resources and the buy-in and pull it together. But there were a lot of good ideas. And, you know, a lot of the ideas back then, those were we, we did. We worked with the faculty over at the college to kind of help come up with some of these ideas. Good ideas. I think industry liked them. It was, but it, when it comes down to it, the idea is only like, you know, 10th of the problem. 90% of the problem is getting the resources and making the, making creating the business and starting from scratch. And that's not where the strength was. I think it, it, that, that didn't go very far once we got past the initial report. I think uh, no matter what the sector um, or the concept, yeah, the idea is cheap. I mean, people get really excited. Hey, I got an idea. I got a startup idea. I got to, hey, love the idea, but that is not the hard part. That's right. Uh, the hard part is the 10 years that go into making it a reality. Um, so you have spent in a, in a sector where there's a lot of turnover and not that many people spend 15 years uh, at, at a given institution. You have. Um, and it sounds like you're, you know, maybe you're even a little surprised by that. But I know you all have had uh, an opportunity to really um, make a big impact in trying to transform uh, a large enterprise. I, I know it isn't easy, but I'm sure uh, navigating enterprise transformation earlier in your career has been helpful in, in you navigating this work. Uh, but you've also been able to really establish your team uh, and UT Austin as a leader in the advancement analytics sector more broadly, uh, especially within the state of Texas, although I know it's, it's, it's gone beyond that. So just tell me a little bit about one, your oversight and sort of core objectives in your role today, and then also maybe just share a little bit on what has you excited about the opportunity for more analytics and data-driven approaches across the sector more broadly. Yeah, I think I'll start with, with you know, uh, the two questions they combine together. What, what excites me and what we're looking at now is, you know, one of the things that I was really impressed with and got me to come back here to, to, to university development was Scott Robinot, our vice president. Uh, he's got a strong vision of where he wants the University of Texas, uh, Texas development community to be in terms of being one of the best in higher education. Uh, so he's given us that challenge to take, you know, if I think about my business, all of the operations that support all our gift officers is how do we come best at process research, at how we provide IT support, how we process gifts. And so that for me is exciting just to try and be the best at something, right? So that means you're benchmarking against your peers. That means you're learning. That means you're breaking down your processes. That means you're looking at your talent, trying to figure out where we get the best talent, the best I'll use the word bang for a buck, but we're really trying to get people opportunities to grow and develop. And so it feels like right now there's an opportunity to drive a lot of change throughout our organization. And the other thing Scott's done a really good job is try to break down these silos. So even though I work in the university development office, we always refer ourselves as Texas development, which is the whole community. So that's, yeah, university development. And we're a key stakeholder to support all this, but that's the business school. That's the Blanton Museum. That's athletics all of the fundraising programs that we have to support. So we're one big community. Uh, no one's more important than the other. We all have a role to play here. And so to me, that's great because now I've got a team of 460 colleagues around campus that we have to work with and support. And they're really good about giving us feedback and helping us to kind of do our job. Uh, and so 
you know, the, if I think about the things that really excite me is that we have an opportunity of almost a blueprint to maybe recreate advancement a little bit. And then you add the dynamic work model on top of that. And being in Austin, you know, an opportunity for us to really recruit some talent and bring them here and kind of do some really amazing things. You know, one example is we're trying to get off our old Oracle system and move over to a cloud platform for our data warehouse and our analytics. Um, and by doing that, hopefully it makes us more efficient, makes our data a little bit easy more to operate and share with other parts of campus. You know, my team, my team maintains over 60 different data, column integrations is too, too generous, but two data flows back and forth that we'd love to automate and become more efficient. Um, and then hopefully down the road, we can take advantage of the AWS analytics platform uh, that can be a little more automated. Uh, we do a lot of manual stuff, which is great, and we need to do that, but we've got to scale. Everything at Texas has to scale to cover all of our fundraisers and our alumni base, and so that's critical for us that we can do that with uh, the minimum amount of resources that we have. So to me, it's, it feels like a great opportunity to really drive a lot of change in our industry. Super exciting and not an easy task, and it's a, a balance of you know having a big vision around where it could go with also being able to make you know, incremental progress um, along the way. You did share uh, a little bit about just your impression of Scott uh, and, and his leadership. And I know that you feel like that's really helped um, accelerate the organization since he joined in 2017. What are some aspects of uh, either just maybe you talk about values and culture. I mean, when you think about 2017 versus today, what are some of the improvements that maybe you felt having been with the organization now for 15 years? A couple of things. One is there is a much more strategic and intentional thought about delivering proposals like nobody's business. And, and what I try to do is take my whole team and make sure we're aligned to support that, where it's my development associates. You know, it's very easy to start throwing secretarial work at them, say, no, no, we need to position you guys to help our gift officers deliver proposals, right? So they're their objectives and key results are OKRs we use to measure their progress this year are going to be all tied around how are you helping your gift officers their proposals. Same thing with my research team, my uh, research analyst. Your job is not just to find prospects and portfolios, but what are we doing to give our prospects the best, I'm sorry, our gift officers the best prospects more timely so they can deliver proposals. And so every team, we're trying to make sure what are we doing to help our gift officers deliver proposals. And so that's become our mantra. And if you talk to Scott, he says, I'm not really interested in a prospect management system. I'm interested in a solicitation management system. So every time we put a prospect in a portfolio, the expectation is at some point, whether it's, you know, 12 months or 24 months, there's going to be a proposal delivered. And so we're much more intentional about just driving everything we can in our business to drive proposals as best we can. And for my role, supporting those gift officers. Tell me a little bit about the difference between a prospect management system and a solicitation management system, because, you know, you could sort of presume, well, obviously the goal of a prospect management system is to get to a point where you can make solicitations and create proposals. Um, what's the difference? I think the biggest, biggest difference is when you look at that portfolio, we try and keep number one, everything that's not going to go to proposal out of that portfolio, right? So only generally only qualified prospects go in that portfolio. So, you know, uh, so that means that our portfolios are much smaller. Our average portfolio is probably around 55 assignments, where in the past would have been probably closer to 150 to 160 uh, uh, prospect uh, assignments. Um, so we try and keep all the qualification outside the portfolio. So a gift officer generally doesn't put a prospect in their portfolio unless they qualify them and feel like, okay, there's some cultivation activity that's going to lead to a proposal. Now, that doesn't always happen, but generally we're trying to re reduce the opportunity of a proposal not coming out of that portfolio. The other thing is we don't let prospects sit in portfolios. We try and drive 
prospects, if they're not getting touched in a portfolio to go to another portfolio. So there's something called a 12 month rule that if you haven't been able to engage with a prospect within 12 months, then we have the right to take that prospect and put them into another gift officer portfolio. So that way prospects don't sit in portfolios for months, months on end without the opportunity to be, to be touched. So everything around the portfolio is, is geared towards cultivation and solicitation. That's it. Uh, we do have a little room for stewardship, but it's small, but it's intended only to be there for a short amount of time before they get put back into cultivation and stewardship. So the whole portfolio is focused on a cycle of cultivation, solicitation, stewardship, back to cultivation. And if it doesn't fit in that criteria, eventually it needs to come out of the portfolio. There's no reason to manage it uh, unless you're going to be driving it for solicitation. Can I ask, or maybe even play devil's advocate a little bit? Sure. Because what I oftentimes think about is, let's say that in the old model, Brent was a prospect and I was the 112th best prospect in one's portfolio of 150. And for whatever reason, the data, the analytics suggested, it makes more sense to shrink portfolios. Therefore, Brent and the other 100 not great prospects or not ready for right now prospects get pushed out so we can be laser focused on the 50 best qualified prospects, right. which makes total sense. And there's obviously great outcomes and revenue production that can come from more focus on truly qualified, excellent prospects, less time chasing the 112th best prospect like Brent. At the same time, what does that mean for my relationship with the University of Texas? What does that mean for that upper middle of the giving pyramid that in some cases we're squeezing even higher to have more focus and produce revenue. What happens to the experience for those folks at, at the top? And I don't think anybody's figured it out yet. We've got some ideas that we're championing and others are trying, but is that a risk or one of the challenges with this model one? Yeah, I think that's a big risk because what's happening is you're, you're moving your, if you think about your gift pyramid, what's happened is we're moving our gift offers, all of them, every one of them up, into the gift pyramid, right? So we're working really good at the top of the pyramid. So let's assume we're talking about half a million, maybe a million and up in gift capacity. So that means that 100,000 or 250,000. And, and for us, many of them gift is 100,000 for a major gift, but you can make the case for a 50,000. You know, we've got, you know, a good number of prospects there. We're not getting the same touch. Uh, we're, some schools are doing it with the annual fund gift officers. We have a small team that does it, but there is a big gap and you're potentially risking a part of your pipeline, right? And bring those people up. And so there needs to be a strategy there. We're all talking about it with whether we're using hand raiser programs so we can get those people that are ready to make a gift at that level to kind of raise their hands and quickly move them into a portfolio since they've responded yes to a survey, whether it's a plan giving survey or of a student support survey, so we can move those into portfolios. Um, but there's probably a digital engagement strategy that needs to be more robust and better. We don't have the resources to do it today. And we've got to figure out some type of in-person activity that maybe you do once a year. Uh, so I agree with you. It is a risk. The challenge is that's the economic trade-offs, right? Do I let right. $100,000 prospects sit on the sidelines or I let $250,000 prospects sit on the side? But what it also does for us, it helps us make a case that we need more gift officers at the lower right. level. And so uh, what we, but it, but it also allows us to do is to keep prospects being hoarded in a portfolio and they never get touched, which that was our tradition in the past is we had lots of great prospects sitting in portfolios for years and just never got the attention because somebody already had better prospects that they could already get in touch with. So you're not off on that. I think that is a risk that we're running. And I think we're just, to me, it's kind of the worst of two evils. Do we not focus on the best prospects or do we focus on less right. small on, on the bottom of the pyramid? So it's a, it's a strategy that's evolving that needs some attention at that level. 
No, and I think, you know, we talk about portfolio purgatory where uh, in a given year uh, across, you know, the community and the data that we have at our disposal at Evertrue, over half of assigned prospects get zero interactions from a gift officer. So on one hand, they're assigned, being hoarded, if you will, we'll call it purgatory. Uh, and so that's not great either. I mean, no matter what, uh, uh, if there's not personalized one-on-one -on -one real conversations happening, it's pretty rare uh, that the gifts close themselves. Um, and, and so uh, certainly an exciting space. And it's great to hear um, that your approach is basically step one, let's make sure we've got the top of the pyramid covered, that it's consistent, that we're not allowing uh, prospects to just go stale in portfolios. And once you've got the top of the pyramid covered, then we can figure out strategies to go a little bit deeper and a little bit cheaper. Yeah, and I think the other piece that's driving us too, and then most of us are in this boat, is you know we are in campaign mode, we're in silent phase, and so we are trying to get to that silent phase goal here pretty shortly, which we'll get. And and you do that by obviously working your bigger prospects, you'll get there quicker. Um, but it, it you're you're raising the alarm on something that we've all known before, but now it's becoming a little bit more um, eye opening because the numbers in terms of prospects and the gift capacity that we're still on the table is still pretty sizable, and yeah. we got to figure out a way to close that. Love it. Um, you've shared a lot about uh, just the, the big ideas you have around creating more integrated systems and, uh, and so forth. I, you know, I'd love to just know a little bit more around uh, some of the people who have influenced you. You've mentioned Scott and Mark Peterson, but who are some of the other folks in the sector that you uh, have either had the opportunity to collaborate with? I mean, recognize that you've really been at UT Austin for you know, the bulk of your, for all of your advancement career, but have you had the opportunity to, to build your professional net, network within the sector? Yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate uh, more recently to kind of get around and talk to more of our peers at, you know, at Penn State, at UCLA. Um, I think, you know, I'd have to mention Bob Groves. He's kind of one of our senior VPs, came from down from Michigan State. Uh, he's been very helpful to just help me understand a little bit more from the gift officer perspective. Um, John Goff on my team, who's kind of coming with a big analytics background, um, came from, from Illinois. So part of it is we're trying to bring those people here to Texas and kind of kind of build a talent base. Um, but I stay in touch also with Daryl Zeinstein over at MD Anderson. You know, he was a big influence. Uh, uh, just watching him and the program he built at Rice and now at MD Anderson. Um, it's, it's interesting to watch how people are developing and growing and taking on new responsibilities. Uh, so I'm very fortunate to have that network uh, and, and but, you know, coming to Texas, I think what we're trying to do at Texas, we're trying to bring them here to Austin um, to kind of help them be part of our team. You just mentioned uh, John Goff. Tell me a little bit about the uh, Texas Advancement Analytics Symposium and some of the work that you all have had an opportunity to lead in that regard. Yeah, John, um, uh, I, what I love about John is he's, he's got um, this ability to kind of want to improve things and make them better all the time. And, you know, he came to me early on uh, when he took over our reporting team and realized that we have this challenge that we're, we're trying to build this deeper analytics space. But what's happening is the people we're on board don't have the advancement experience, right? And so you have to go back to this concept trade-off. Do you grow your own or do you go try and hire folks or behind their expertise? And, you know, we've done some of the conference circuits, which are great, uh, but they're really focused on business intelligence reporting, not a lot of depth analytics. And John felt we needed to build a community around analytics. And he, John and 
Walt and I were having lunch when they talked about this topic and Walt had a great idea. He said, why don't you build it yourself? You know, bring some of the best and brightest in our education, bring them to Texas and kind of build some type of way that we can build a community around this. And John had a great idea of, you know, he's a former faculty member has taught uh, in the information science space and thought about a symposium, a great way to bring a group of people that have an idea, maybe they've researched it, they kind of put a paper together and be able to present at a symposium and then use that to kind of drive a journal. All right, so we've done our second uh, task, Texas Advanced Event Analytics Symposium. We do them in June now. Uh, it was in, originally intended to be an in-person event, but we went obviously uh, virtual because of, of COVID. And then related to that, we've also started the uh, Journal for Advanced Analytics. Uh, we just published the first version uh, this past March. Uh, we're working on the second version, which hopefully may launch uh, January of 2022. And the intent here is to bring the ideas, the community, and the literature together so we can have these different topics that people can present about. You know, last year we had this great presentation from a colleague from Columbia who was talking about a new way of doing gift capacity scores. And he had a new data set because generally our gift capacity scores are, are pretty conservative. And we, I don't think we've really looked at this, at least since I've been involved in higher education. So is there a better way we can do gift capacity scores that are more realistic and not so conservative? And I understand why they're conservative, but we've got to be better at work because I'm worried that we're missing opportunities in some of our database. So uh, we've had another round of great topics that we're, we're presenting. And, and again, this gives us a, a literature that people can review and uh, be able to build upon the knowledge in this space. And But most importantly, it's a community of like-minded people that want to learn more and really get into the depth of analytics. And I think we've just touched the tip of the iceberg in terms of what analytics can do in our field. Tell me more about that. And specifically, when you think about where we are versus where we could be or should be, I know you're reading... McKinsey, you're reading different, um, uh, you know, insights on this topic constantly. What is the difference between where we are, you know, business intelligence or visualization or reporting and advanced analytics or analytics in general? How would you even define the difference for uh, maybe our listeners who aren't as familiar? Yeah, one of the advanced analytics is, is in our databases, there is unique data sets or uh, indicators that tell us certain things about our donors and alumni. And until we have the data in a format that's structured or that can be used, we're not seeing those things in terms of how we qualify our donors and give propensity scores. I think the other piece that's missing is in our processes. You know, at Texas, you know, we're going to issue over 200,000 receipts. We're going to process over 400,000 different gifts. How do we personalize that without having to have a human being decide all the different salutations and how we do these things? Can we get a system that kind of help us decide how to process when they see a VIP person, we know we can treat them a little bit differently versus, you know, someone who's making a hundred dollar gift. Now, they're both important to us, but that VIP person needs that little extra touch from Scott, the president, others. So how do we create processes that can handle that complexity and make decisions for us versus having a human being make those decisions? You know, for Texas, that's a big deal because, you know, we are, you know we've got over 600,000 donors in our database. We're trying to manage all that complexity. And a lot of times we're throwing labor at it or people, which is not bad, but there's more efficient ways to do that using technology to kind of help us kind of manage some of these different complexities and how we process things, how we manage things. Um, so there's a lot of business rules in place that we could be more sophisticated if we had the right systems in place and the right uh, tool sets to kind of predict those things, identify where we have differences and kind of make decisions for it. And so if we boiled that down to a really micro example, let's say two donors give at 152 central time on July 20th, which is what we're sitting at right now. One of them 
is a recent graduate who makes a hundred dollar donation first time ever. Another one is somebody who's a lap supporter 30 years out, makes a hundred dollar donation, same appeal, same amount. But that latter person, uh, we believe based on data indicators, third party sources, et cetera, has massive net worth. Part of what I'm hearing you say is maybe for some, maybe today the status quo is unfortunately it's possible that the response and the stewardship to those two individuals could be the same, but it should be different. Yeah, correct. Because the first one I'd love to do is that's a first time donor. We want to treat them as a first time donor, right? So there's a series of steps that we do and there's probably a first time donor card that's going to go out to them. Uh, one of the things we're doing first time donors is in our numerous, we're making sure they all get paper receipts if they come online and that paper receipt has a second ask, right? So that first time donor, I'd love to automate that whole process. That second ask goes out versus having to kind of do the process we're doing today. On that, that, that latter donor, the lapsed donor, I'd love to have the system recognize that they're a lapsed donor and so that we could recognize it in the receipt real time if they're making a line and say, welcome back, right? And if they've got the right gift capacity that maybe we flagged them to a gift officer or to a researcher to begin to say, hey, this person looks like they've got the gift capacity. Should we go ahead and get them a follow-up visit or get them into our survey program to get them a hand raiser to see if they're interested in a visit about applying gifts or our student support campaign that we've got going on. So if you could think about processing that, because right now what's happening is that's going through our daily batch process at night, an email go out and kick off a receipt. And they're probably gonna look very similar. Eventually in a couple of weeks uh, or a week or so, the first donor will get a paper receipt, but you know, I'd love for that to be printed that night and go out that day with that second ask. And potentially that second ask would already be customized because we know your preferences. So maybe you gave a gift unrestricted, but maybe we have a second ask that goes to a program, a student support or something that you might be interested in. Maybe you were a student and you participated in our, in our rec facility. So maybe that second ask should go there to kind of try and get you engaged there. So um, I think we could do much more to kind of figure out what's going to be your thing and try and get it to you more quickly yeah. in a format that meets your needs. And it's not always digital for some folks. I think now yeah. that we've gone so much digital, there's a role for direct mail and more different uh, different ways to touch you than we have in the past. Yeah. Several of my colleagues at Evertrue worked for a company uh, previously called Session M, which has since been acquired by MasterCard. And Session M was basically what they called a rules-based loyalty engine. And, and it's the technology that um, supports the loyalty programs of, of many consumer brands that you and I are familiar with. And um, I, I get so excited when I hear you describe what sounds like a rules-based loyalty engine. If this happens, then this should be the response. If that happens and the profile looks like this, then this is the response. And how do we make that as scalable as possible and as automated as possible? But at the same time, when it means, when the rule says, if this, then that, then Scott or the president of the university should be involved, we can bring in the human element, but doing so through more technology automation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, and I would say, I think with our systems, I mean, we're, we're better at trying to communicate internally, like donor makes a gift, we communicate to the gift officer, yeah, your person made a gift, right? But where we where really struggle is, you know, how does that donor experience happen? Right. Like when when that donor comes online, makes a gift, do we present them and said, hey, uh, 
your gift officer will be in touch with you. Thanks for doing that. Right? Oh, do we have a message from that gift officer? Right? So we're trying, because at the end of the day, what our system should do is find more opportunities for our gift officers to be in touch with their prosecutor's donors, if that's the right, right. strategy, right? Because that's one more opportunity to get closer to that next proposal or the next gift. And so we're not there yet in terms of thinking this whole system from the customer donor's perspective about how we make it more meaningful for your, for your contributions to kind of help you engage with us. Well, it's a really exciting aspirational vision that I know if you can continue to architect at, at, at UT Austin, it will have applicability more broadly. Um, we need to wrap up, Juan. I really appreciate the conversation, but I am curious to know, uh, you mentioned campaign. Obviously, it's been a, a challenging year on a variety of fronts. Seems like we're coming out of it. Are you hiring? And if people do want to stay in touch with you, I've already given you given you a shout out on LinkedIn. Um, what else you know should folks have in mind? Are there opportunities at your organization right now? Yeah, we are growing. Uh, we've been trying to, you know, we during the COVID, we did all have hiring freezes, but we did make a decision, at least our vice president, that that we would still consider strategic hires, people that we more might not be able to get in, but during this time frame, we're, we're looking so. Texas is growing and, uh, you know, our, our goal here is to really take this, we're a, our trend to go to a $5 billion campaign eventually. And so um, there's many opportunities for here at Texas to grow. So we're, we're looking forward to kind of, you know, getting folks down to Austin the best we can to kind of enjoy Austin, but enjoy the University of Texas. Well, thank you so much, Juan. I'd encourage everybody to, to follow Juan or connect on LinkedIn. Uh, look up the Texas Advancement Analytics Symposium. They just finished their event in June, but you can see the itinerary, uh, the schedule. You can uh, also check out the Journal of Advancement Analytics and really appreciate your willingness to share with our audience, Juan, and uh, everything you and your, your team are doing to push the sector forward. Yeah, my pleasure, Brent. Uh, we're grateful to you for this opportunity and obviously your partnership. I know we haven't had a chance to work together more formally, but I've always been impressed with Ever True and your ideas and your aggressiveness to try and you know move push this industry along. So I appreciate the investment and uh, impact that you and your team have. So uh, thank you for this opportunity. Appreciate that, Juan. It's almost August, which means 110 degree days are around the corner. So it might be time for a repeat visit. Anytime, and then football season's right around the corner, hopefully. So, uh, all right, here. Uh, game on. Hook them. Take care, Juan. Bye. Take care. Bye bye.